Hey everybody, how's it going? I am Trentus Magnus, and I welcome you to the inaugural episode of Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. This podcast is dedicated to comic books, TV shows, and movies that I like, or hate, or just became exposed to. Anyway, it's hard to be completely original in today's crowded field of podcasts, but what I think we can all agree on was that my perspective was sorely missing. And because my perspective is my perspective, and thus right, I felt compelled to start my own podcast in order to give the rest of you some guidance. Because of that, I don't know that I'll have very many guests on this show. After all, I'm right. I'm the one with the answers, and I'm the one you should all listen to. In any event, please be advised that I won't make much of an effort, at least for now, to keep the language clean on this show. It's supposed to be a form for me... To be uncensored, so if the occasional cuss word bothers you, sorry, but the door is right over there. Lastly, I'd like to just say that I've never hosted a podcast before. This is my first one. So be gentle. Hey, your attention, please. This is a piece of art. His Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. Dr. Doom, where's body to conceal his own mangled form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Yeah. Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important. This is now the fifth time I have had to try recording all of this, but by God, I'm going to try to get through it. I keep getting interrupted and everything, and it's really starting to get old. But anyway, to business. The topic for this episode isn't specifically about comic books. I've had a lot to say about Smallville, the TV show, for quite a while now. Basically, ever since the show ended, really. There's been a lot of anger and invective against the show, especially over the past couple of years since the show ended. Now, as a huge Smallville fan, it kind of gets under my skin to the point I just can't take it anymore. So this is going to be my defense of Smallville. But before we get into that, I think it's important to kind of give my history with the show. So it was around the spring of 2001 when I heard that some new Superman show was in development. Now, at the time, all that was really known for uh, certain was that it would take place in Clark Kent's teenage years, long before he became Superman. In fact the show would basically follow him on his journey toward becoming Superman. It sounded a lot like the Superman equivalent of Dawson's Creek, and I can't say I was too enthused about the prospects of my beloved Superman being turned into yet another WB teen drama. I just didn't think it was necessary. And when the show premiered, my disdain for it was only heightened when I found out that a, that a girlfriend that I'd just broken up with was completely in love with it. And you know how it goes. Your, your ex is in love with something, so the part of you that's still pissed off at her feels like you have to hate whatever it is that she loves. It's the principle of the thing, you know? And Smallville, at least at first, was kind of a victim of that. But at the same time, it's still a Superman show, so I, I couldn't resist checking out at least a few episodes. Um, and although it, it wasn't exactly the kind of teen drama that I had been expecting... It, it has to be said that those season one episodes were pretty formulaic. To me, it just it felt like there was a good show lurking around in there somewhere, but it was lost underneath the recycled and repetitive plot lines. But it wasn't bad at all. However, I really was not a consistent viewer of the show until the uh, season two episode, Rosetta. 
where Christopher Reeve guest starred at a, as a, a scientist who would reveal Clark's true origins to him. This is stunt casting at its finest, and I bought it. Hook, line, and sinker. And from that point on, I never missed an episode. The writing style on the show had matured a lot since the first season, and it was really looking like the show could finally live up to its potential. From there, the show would go through peaks and valleys, good times and bad times. But I thought of my following Smallville as being sort of like a marriage, and that we were both committed to making it work over the long haul. What I noticed fairly early on, though, was that the show would regularly be abused by people who, frankly, really ought to know better. It became a sort of whipping boy among fans, and the prevailing sentiment is that at some arbitrary point in the show's history, Clark should have just become Superman already. On top of that, every single plot, character, guest star, villain, and anything else you can possibly imagine was picked apart and pretty much burned in effigy. For example, one common complaint people seem to have is that Clark should have become Superman much sooner than he actually did. However, the show's entire premise is that it follows Clark as he gets closer and closer to becoming Superman. Once he becomes Superman, that is the point when the show ends. That's the, the decision that the showrunners have made. That is the end of the show. No flights, no tights was the mantra from day one. The producer said again and again that you will not see Clark become Superman until the end of the final episode. Now, if you can't get on board with that because you want to see Superman, you need to find something else to watch. Also, after the series finale had aired, a lot of people crawled out of the woodwork to piss and whine about how long it took for Clark to become Superman and how short the Superman portion of the finale was. And guys, again, I know this may seem like a cop-out, but... No flights, no tights, none of this is... This won't become Superman until the very last part of the very last episode. That was the concept of the show from the start. From the day the show was announced, there was one major promise we were given, and that was that we wouldn't see Clark fly or wear the Superman outfit during the main part of the show's run. This is the major indulgence you have to make at the door. And it's because of that that I never understood people who whined until the bitter fucking end about the lack of Superman on the show. Now, I know this is probably going to piss some people off, but I got to be honest. A lot of people out there seem to think that their opinion has any validity in reviewing this series just because they claim to be Superman fans. Well, guys, no. No. Their opinion has zero validity because they never accepted the show's basic premise. You don't have the right to buy tickets to a baseball game and hate on it because it's not a hockey game. If you want to watch a hockey game, buy a ticket to a hockey game. If you want to watch Superman, watch Superman, but don't come to Smallville expecting it to be anything other than what it is. The other part of it is, if your history with the show includes the phrase, I didn't watch it regularly, but... Guys, I'm sorry, you've got no cred with me. None. Zero. Now... Another big complaint is that the show deviated from the canon. My answer to that is that Smallville didn't deviate any more often, and certainly to no worse an effect than other adaptations, Superman the movie, Superman the animated series, on and on. The show's creative decisions generally fall into uh, either into uh, artistic license or else uh, relate to comics that 99% of the whiners haven't read. But... I refuse to let a so-called fan's lack of familiarity uh, with the source material be a justifiable excuse for wrongly picking on Smallville. Another gripe is that the show should not have lasted 10 years. Instead, the showrunners should have ended it in season 6 or season 7. However, things like that are not the showrunner's choice. The network decides how many episodes they want from a given season and whether or not a show will return for another season. All a showrunner does is attempt to fill the number of episodes ordered by the network. The fact that Smallville lasted for ten seasons, apart from being a testament to what a reliable performer it was, that's the network's decision. The showrunners have nothing to do with it. And 
I'll, at this point, what I think that kind of brings me to is the character development section in my notes. Now, people, I'm not going to sit here and argue that every single little thing Smallville ever did was amazing and awesome and pure gold. Season 4 alone proves that wrong. But in the main, Smallville got a hell of a lot more right than it ever did wrong. The reason Smallville works for me is because it makes the concept of Superboy work for me. I love Superboy. And by that, I mean I love the adventures of Superman as a boy. But the problem with Superboy is that, to me, the only justification for his existence is for him to be in some way or another different from Superman. Superboy means to bring something to the table that Superman can't. Well, Superman is wholesome and pure. If Superboy is to be different, doesn't he have to be something other than wholesome and pure? Shouldn't Superboy make mistakes and wrong decisions and bad judgment calls? The problem there is that you run the risk of sullying what Superman stands for if you make Superboy too flawed. Even so, I happen to think that Superboy has a really cool backstory, and it, it, it would be a shame to just forget about it and leave it on the table just because we're trying to protect uh, Superman's virtuous image. On the other hand, there's the teenage Clark Kent that John Byrne gave us, who was never Superboy, but he also never really had any adventures until he became Superman, after which that's when all the adventures started. The genius of Smallville, for me, is that it combines the pre-crisis concept of Superboy with the Burn Age concept of a Superman who had never been Superboy and makes a really fucking amazing story out of it. It's the best of both worlds, in my opinion. You have a, you have a Clark Kent learning how to be Superman without sullying the, the virtue and integrity and purity and goodness of Superman. It's the best of both worlds. So, Smallville claims to be about Clark's journey becoming Superman. What happened? What choices did he make? Who did he meet along the way? All of these things are supposed to be part of his journey towards the suit, towards becoming Superman. So the most logical question to ask is, how well does Smallville tell that story? Remarkably well, actually. In the pilot episode of the series, we're introduced to a Clark Kent who'd probably never really used his powers to save people before. In fact, he barely had any powers at all, since we only see invulnerability, super strength, and super speed in the pilot. The first episode set a lot of things into motion, arguably the most important for Clark's character development for, for the whole series is that Clark uses his abilities to save someone for the very first time. In fact, a major issue all throughout Season 1 is how unfamiliar all of this is to Clark. He's accustomed to using his powers to do work around the farm and things like that to do chores, but using his powers for offensive purposes, by which I mean to perform rescues or fight supervillains or what have you, all of that is clearly a new thing for him. Now, he does well for himself, but you can tell that he's still struggling with these things. But at the same time, there's a clear conviction, apart from anything the Kents tell him, by the way, that he's doing the right thing by using his powers to help others. See, a lot of people tend to miss tend to miss this, but Jonathan and Martha never tell Clark to use his powers to save people. Not in Smallville. They told him that he can't use his abilities to help himself. They tell him to be to be cautious and careful when he uses his powers. But I'm at a I'm at a loss to think of a time so much as one time in the early seasons of the show where they endorsed the idea of Clark using his powers to rescue people, fight supervillains, and so forth. I've always liked this angle, actually. The Kents are salt-of-the-earth people. They would instruct Clark to never take unfair advantage of his powers or of other people. That's good stuff for Clark to learn, but Clark is the one who has to decide to, to use his powers to protect others, and that's what happens in Smallville. He defers to his parents and that he's saving people as an anonymous hero, but he is still saving them. They never actually tell him that this is, this is what he should be doing. They just tell him, make sure nobody sees your face. And this is really good stuff. Clark, Jonathan, and Martha are all made more noble for these choices. 
Now, all that being said, the Clark through most of seasons one through five is pretty territorial and reactive. Smallville and Metropolis are not the only places in the world that need help. For that matter, Clark's friends can't be the only people who ever find themselves in danger. Even so, Clark's actions tend to be A, protective only of himself, his friends, and his family, and B, strictly reactive to the situations he and they find themselves in. Clark may do heroic things in the early seasons of the show, but he's not a hero in the sense of going out and seeking ways to help people simply because it's the right thing to do. He's not there yet. Now, that begins to change a little bit in Season 6. Two factors come into play that begin changing Clark's worldview. The first is the group of phantoms he accidentally released from the Phantom Zone. The second factor is Oliver Queen. This is just my opinion, but if the Zoners had escaped in in, uh, Season 3... I firmly believe Clark might have waited until they found him, and then he would have taken taken them down. That's not a criticism, it's just commentary on Clark's mindset at the time. He would have waited for them to to find him rather than to go looking for them himself. He was a reactive character. He didn't go looking for trouble. Instead, he waited for trouble to come a-knocking, and then he did some knocking of his own. But that changed in season six Clark freed those phantoms from the zone it might have been an accident Clark might not have meant to do it and he very well might have chosen to stay in the zone himself rather than risk letting the the prisoners escape but the bottom line is that he recognized that he made this mess and so he made a priority of cleaning it up himself he made it his mission to track down the zoners and put them back in the phantom zone even so it should be noted here that Clark is simply willing to take more responsibility for his actions. Superman actively patrols and seeks out crimes to stop and rescues to perform. That is not what Clark is doing in Season 6. In Season 6, he's merely taking steps to fix problems he accidentally caused. He's not being proactive in general, he's just taking the initiative and fixing a problem that ultimately he's responsible for. So, You can see he's growing, but he's still not ready for prime time. This is one of Oliver's major gripes against Clark in Season 6. If it hadn't been for the escaped Phantom Zoners, Oliver's point is that Clark would probably be content to continue just living his life quietly in Smallville. In spite of the problems facing the world, and in spite of Clark's many and varied superhuman gifts, Clark was still mostly waiting for trouble to come looking for him before getting to work. Of all people, Ollie had the right to say this stuff. He was a billionaire, the head of a Fortune 500 company, and a regular human without powers. He had at least as much justification for sitting on his butt all day watching TV, but he still made it his mission to make the world a better place for him being in it. He did that as the Green Arrow, but he also did it as plain old Oliver Queen. True. Clark had to straighten Oliver out and steer him toward becoming a superhero rather than basically a thief. But either way, at least Oliver's heart was in the right place. Now, a lot of people criticize that aspect of the series. For some reason, they seem to think that Clark should immaculately be Superman without any outside influence, and honestly, I don't buy that. I never saw a problem with Clark being influenced by others. In this case, Oliver provided a nice example of what to do and what not to do. Season 7 is really the final season of the Clark we first met in the pilot. In Season 7, Clark's every wish came true. For once, Clark was permitted to indulge in every single fantasy he'd ever had. In the previous seasons, how fucking many times did Clark wish out loud that he could meet someone who was just like him? Well, in Season 7, Kara came to Smallville and mostly all she did was complicate Clark's life. When he thought back on his relationship with Lana Lang, Clark had more than once said that they could have been happy together had she known his secret. Also about Lana, Clark always believed the best of her, that she was the pretty pink princess who would never do anything to hurt anyone. But in Season 7, Lana was a borderline villain. In private, Clark had wondered, and even flat out said, that Earth, 
his friends and his family, might have been better off had his ship never landed on Earth. In Season 7, the episode Apocalypse, Jarrell showed Clark exactly what would have happened if he had not come to Earth. My point here is that every single illusion Clark had ever had about himself was dealt with in Season 7. Every lie Clark had ever told himself was exposed as the excuse that it always was. Clark would mostly never use any of these excuses ever again. Season 7 was where Clark realized that the only person holding him back was himself. For that reason, it always blows my mind when people say that Season 7 is the most useless of the whole series. Well, sorry folks, but without Season 7, nothing that happened later would have ever made a bit of sense. At the end of Odyssey, the first episode of Season 8, Clark tells John Jones that he'd been clinging to a life in Smallville that hadn't existed for years. And it's true. Clark had to accept that his life had changed. And it wasn't a good thing. It wasn't a bad thing. It was just a true thing. It was time for him to grow up and move on. Because of all of that, Clark took a job at the Daily Planet. Mostly, this was so he could finally start taking Oliver's advice about being proactive in handling problems and crises as they arose. Season 8 is crucial for Clark in a lot of ways, one being that Clark could no longer be content with hiding out on the farm and ignoring outside troubles. He realized that it was time for him to start expanding his worldview. His major problem in Season 8, and I would say really for the rest of the series, was his black-and-white binary thinking. Clark in Smallville has a unique background. He was an alien raised as a human, and biology notwithstanding, Clark thought, acted, and behaved like a human. In Clark's mind, he could either be fully human or fully Kryptonian. There was no middle path. There was no third choice. And because of that, he was psychologically incapable of adopting a dual identity. Don't get me wrong, he would eventually be saddled with a dual identity anyway in Season 8, but he continued operating anonymously, and I think it's worth mentioning, he didn't create that identity himself. That came about from the media. Clark would eventually embrace the concept of being the red and blue blur, but he didn't invent it. He never wanted it, and the formulation of this so-called secret identity came only by happenstance because Jimmy luckily managed to photograph a, well, a red and blue blur rescuing Lois. What Clark learned was that the public needed a hero to believe in. That makes his coming out in the season 8 episode infamous all the more believable. Clark knew that Linda Lake would expose his secret, but Clark already knew that the public would accept him if he ever went public with his true identity. So Clark had Lois publish his story. This episode is, at least in my opinion, what enforced Clark's decision to keep his secret under wraps. Yeah, the public accepted him, but Linda was still able to turn public officials against him. Because of the magic of time travel, Clark was able to put the genie back into the bottle. It wasn't a total loss, though. In Infamous, Clark discovered that Lois would stand by him and defend him any way she could. In fact, you could argue that this episode is what set up the Lois and Clark love story. I mean, I know that it actually started a few, in fact, several episodes before this, but in terms of Clark's reciprocating it, I think this is where this is where it all started. Now, as always, Clark's main problem in all this was his binary thinking. In his mind, he could either continue operating in secret or else reveal to the world that Clark Kent has superpowers. This is reflective of, of his human versus Kryptonian thinking on the matter. The Kents had done a great job of raising him to be responsible, no doubt about it, but they had done maybe too good a job at teaching him to be secretive and anonymous. Their rules made a lot of sense in a small town where everyone knows everyone else's business. But Clark had to grow beyond that in his life, and he'd started doing so, but he hadn't overcome that in his psychology. Throughout the series up to this point, Clark had put the human race kind of on a pedestal. In his view, he simplistically reduced the argument to human good, Kryptonian bad. In Clark's mind, the human race was morally superior in every way, and this was the desirable way to live. That all came to an end in Season 8, though, when the Justice League turned on him and when a fully human Davis Bloom killed Henry James Olsen, Clark was forced to reevaluate. Clark's decision between Season 8 and 9 to fully engage his Kryptonian side came from shock and disillusionment. It isn't that he had lost faith in humanity, 
It's that his dualistic, black-and-white thinking had been seriously challenged. Clark attempted to reject his human identity from a sense of duty. He reasoned that his old way of living as a human, among humans, while performing superhuman rescues, had failed him. Because of that, why not attempt to follow Jarrell's advice for once and become more of a Kryptonian model of a hero and champion? The problem is that Clark couldn't fully commit to that. He made an attachment to Lois Lane in Season 8. So even though Clark had worked on the training Jarrell had planned for him, and even adopted his Kryptonian family's crest as a symbol, he still had that human attachment to Lois. Jarrell's point in all of this is that cutting off that kind of emotional attachment is not the same as resolving it. And Clark even confessed all of that to Chloe in Season 9, Episode 2, Metallo. He had run away from his problems rather than confronting them. And in so doing, he'd abandoned his friends. And he'd learned his lessons. Uh, Even so, Clark would struggle with the human versus Kryptonian thing for the rest of season 9 and I would argue for the rest of the series. Season 10 brought the return of the Luthers and the coming of Darkseid. And besides that stuff, superheroes had become more widespread than ever. Under Darkseid's influence, the public was beginning to revolt against them. Clark thought he was a lot more prepared for these conflicts than he actually was. He wanted to be a hero and protector, but he still lived in regret over his past and in fear of his future. Lois Lane is what changed all of that. People see Lois being the co-creator of Superman as a pretty drastic change to the mythos, although that's sort of become less of an issue today in our post-Man of Steel world, but Smallville broke new ground with Lois helping create Superman as an alternate identity. That much is true. But the TV show Lois and Clark had set up Lois as a key influence on Clark developing Superman after his public debut. The comics would eventually run with this notion of Lois being what ultimately keeps Clark going as Superman. I mention all of this to say that the way Smallville did it really isn't all that drastic a departure like it first seems. All Smallville really did was move Lois further back in the development process, but the idea of Lois being what sustains Clark as Superman is all but official canon at this point. See, Clark was simply incomplete as a hero without Lois to give him something to live for. Season 9 ended with Clark attempting to sacrifice himself to save the world from Zod after he and Lois seemed to be on the outs with each other. The world needs to be inspired by Superman, but Clark needs to be inspired by Lois. He needs something to live for, and not to get too shippy about this, but Lois Lane gives Clark what Lana Lane couldn't. Clark's love for Lana was always kind of selfish. He viewed Lana as something to lose. Lois represented something to be gained. He viewed his relationship with Lois in positive terms because the relationship itself was positive. When Clark attempts to deal with Darkseid himself in the 10th season episode Supergirl, Kara has to intervene because Clark's head is all over the place. Without Lois to serve as a kind of purifying agent, Clark is subject to all feelings of helplessness, despair, fear, everything that Darkseid preys upon. Jarrell prevents Clark from becoming Superman in the season 10 premiere Lazarus, specifically because he's incomplete as a hero. And because, let's face it, there were 21 more episodes still to come in the season. Now, even though he and Lois reconcile after the awesome 200th episode Homecoming, Clark still has to stay in the shadows until all the brouhaha regarding the Vigilante Registration Act is is taken care of. He may be 99% ready to become Superman, but the world just isn't ready for Superman. Not yet. But that doesn't last very long. After the repeal of the Vigilante Registration Act, the return of the Luthers, and the invasion of Apocalypse, Clark's hand is forced. He has to take drastic action. But before he can really mount any kind of resistance, Clark gets attacked by Darkseid in the barn. It's in that moment that Clark has a realization. He comes to a place of acceptance about his past, his family, and his life. He is a human Kryptonian, and he is a Kryptonian human. He is both of those things, and that's okay. Darkseid had flat out told him that if he was anything else, he'd never be able to fight back. This realization and acceptance is what unlocks Clark's ability to fly. 
and I have to talk about this. All of Clark's other powers, they're mostly either passive or biological in nature. Heat vision came from, shall we say, hormonal development. And vulnerability is completely passive. It requires no special effort on Clark's part. Uh, controlling his super speed and super senses just requires practice. Clark can perfect all of these things. And all of these things came to Clark whether he was ready or not. But flying is different. This is the one superpower in Clark's arsenal that requires him to fully acknowledge that he's doing the impossible. Flying requires Clark to acknowledge that he's an alien and be at peace with it. And for the first time, he is. After getting Darkseid's avatar out of the way, Clark makes his way back to the fortress. There's a conversation that takes place with Jarrell where Clark confesses his, con his realization that abandoning his past, as he had tried to do, was never the answer. Remembering his history, but simultaneously not dwelling on or rejecting it, is the only way to move forward. So, Jarrell and Jonathan both make their final appearances in the series, both giving their blessing to their son and anointing Superman. From there, Superman rescues and stabilizes Air Force One, and then, and I have to assume this is a nod to the pre-crisis nature of the show, Superman pushes Apocalypse, an entire planet, out of Earth's orbit, and in so doing, stripping all of humanity of their omegas and breaking Darkseid's hold over the world. A boy becomes a man. A farmer becomes a hero. Clark becomes Superman. Enjoy the two true freaks internet radio broadcast. Illogic, foolish emotions, a constant irritant, and freak. Two. Well, I'm in a circus. <laughs> right next to the dog-faced boy. I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. Oh, shit. It's a super prize package worth $9,388. Money. This isn't the biggest bag over the head. Punch in the face I ever got. God damn it! Ow! And now, together by live simulation via the internet, your hosts, Scott Gardner. He killed a police officer for Christ's sake. Thank God damn lucky he didn't kill us. And Chris Honeywell. Keep away! Keep away from me! You are physically repulsive, intellectually retarded, vulgar, insensitive, selfish, stupid. You have no taste, a lousy sense of humor, and you smell. At me? Yeah, because she thought you're some kind of freak. Now, come on, she let's thought, go. She likes me, eh? No way. Shut up, you freak! Julia, shoot. I said shut up! It's a man house! A man house! TwoTrueFreaks.com Okay, so... I've just spent the past 40 or so minutes telling you about how awesome I think Clark's journey in Smallville is. Still, I have to admit that not everything was perfect. So here are a couple of things that, in all honesty, I think could have been done better. Now, the most obvious thing to mention in any list of gripes about Smallville is the character of Lana Lang. The only time she was a compelling character, at least for me, was in Season 7, uh, which is where she was played almost like an anti-hero or a villain or something. For the first time in the history of the series, the writing acknowledged all of her problems and her flaws and her ruthlessness. For once, she wasn't written like she was an angel. Of course, that followed six seasons where apparently only positive portrayals of Lana were allowed. 
Um, although this trend arguably peaked in season four, she was usually written as the perfect p- pretty pink princess who could simultaneously go to high school and manage her own coffee shop full-time before flying off to Paris to study art. Lana was often written as a passive-aggressive shrew of a human being that made other people's lives miserable, but she was never, ever called out on the carpet for it. The writers wrote her as a sort of Mary Sue and steadfastly refused to acknowledge what a terrible person she could sometimes be. And I think this ultimately worked to hurt the uh, series. Now, apart from her, Oliver and Chloe... I guess the short version here is I never bought their relationship. I never liked them being together, and this entire plot line annoyed me from the day that it was introduced until the end of the series. I just did not enjoy it, and I, that's a, probably about the nicest way I could put it. After that, you get into Tess Mercer. Now, I realized that the showrunners were stuck with Michael Rosenbaum's departure from the show, and they had to come up with a new villain. That was the hand that they were dealt and they didn't have any choice in the matter. They did the best they could, and to be sure, Cassidy Freeman did a great job of portraying Tess, but Tess worked best as a supporting character. During those times when she took center stage, which happened once or twice per season, I was usually bored out of my mind because I really don't care about her, her background, her twisted upbringing, or really much of anything else about her. Plus, the series seemed determined to constantly reveal new and supposedly interesting things about her history each season, and it got to the point where I had to wonder how well all of this stuff could really fit together into her background. But to be honest, I never bothered to think a whole lot about it because I didn't care about her as a character. So, (sighs) next, Lex's Amnesia. For a long time, one of the major hallmarks of Smallville, one of the things that just really, in in my opinion, made it really cool, was how it sometimes put Clark and Lex on parallel journeys. They were sometimes faced with similar choices and conflicts, and it was always interesting to compare how their choices matched up with each other, but also how they diverged. All of that was wiped away in the series finale whenever uh, Lex lost his memory. Now, I can somewhat defend this on the ground that it completes the Lex and Clark parallel journey thing in that Jarrell and Jonathan used Clark's memories and his history to remind him of his inner strength and virtue in the face of an existential threat while Lex's family, i.e. Tess, robbed him of his own history and left him helpless in in, in the face of that same threat. So, on a thematic note, Clark's family and his blood work to strengthen him, while Lex's family constantly works to poison him, to weaken him. All of this works really nicely on a thematic level, because that those things are true of the characters throughout the entire series. The problem, though, is that on a plot level, on a character level, the problem with all of that is that erasing Lex's memory also erases every last bit of character development he experienced throughout the series. Everything that happened to Lex before the last few minutes of the series finale is pretty much worthless now because it's been all wiped away. And that's a damn shame because the Smallville version of Lex is one of the best representations the character has ever received outside of the comics. Now, apart from all of those things, I've made passing references here and there to Season 4, but it's worth mentioning that I think Season 4 is Smallville's absolute low point. It's a black hole for anything cool and interesting. There may be good individual episodes or cool action sequences here and there, but by and large, the core concept of Season 4 is everything Smallville shouldn't be. In effect, Lana arguably becomes the primary protagonist, and in a strange way, kind of the antagonist too, uh, throughout this this season, Season 4. The big bads of Season 4 are Jason and Genevieve Teague, but the weird thing, when you really look back and just analyze it, is Clark never has any kind of confrontation with them. Lana confronts them several times, and she even kills Genevieve, but mostly Clark is reduced to chasing the various stones of knowledge around and uh, passing a football with Jonathan. The majority of the the conflicts and problems of Season 4 exclude Clark, even though they directly affect him. If anybody else finds the stones of knowledge, we're told that the shit's going to hit the fan. But few of the episodes really bring Clark into that conflict and none of them put him into 
any kind of a confrontation with the villains of the piece, with the Teagues. So I guess my point is, for as awesome as the flying sequence in the season four premiere was, that doesn't make me forget how much Clark is pretty much sidelined for most of the season, except during the standalone episodes. So it's for these reasons that I say that season four is the year when Smallville sucked. Okay, before I end this thing, I should probably talk about how this podcast came to be. I always owned comics. I literally cannot remember a time in my life when there weren't at least a few comics laying around the house. There was a, there was a time when comics were just standard operating equipment for any kid, and I always had several in my own possession. Now... Even though I was too young to really read and understand, I was still able to piece together the story by studying the art in the comic book. Uh, John Byrne was especially good at conveying the big idea of his stories, using his art to convey what's happening on the page at any given time. So, because his were the easiest, I followed his run on Superman as best an eight-year-old kid in the 80s could. At the same time, I also can't remember a time when Superman wasn't my favorite character. I was introduced to him through the movies, just like every other kid of my generation. And as a matter of fact, I'm, I'm the only person I know who saw Superman 4 when it was in theaters. So, there's some trivia for you. Anyhow... So to some degree, I was always a comic book reader, but the idea of being a comic book collector was somewhat foreign to me until a chance visit my mom paid to a friend of hers from college during the summer of 1990. While the adults were talking, I hung out with uh, the friend's son. His name was Jeremy. He was about a year older than I was. His room was covered in various superhero posters, and he even showed me some of his art. I remember thinking he was pretty good, although who knows. Anyhow, the subject turned to comics, and he asked which ones I collected. I told him I didn't really collect anything. Um, basically, we just bought comics, and I usually kept them until they fell apart, after which they would get thrown away. <laughs> I will remember the look he gave me for the rest of my life. This kid, Jeremy, he looked shocked and scandalized. And I realized in that moment, I had just said the worst possible thing I could have under the circumstances. And I, I, I guess he was so disgusted with me and my answer, he didn't even want to touch that part of the conversation. So he just started talking about uh, Batman. The um, Tim Burton movie had come out about a year, uh, about a year earlier, and Batman was still on a lot of people's minds. Uh, I told him that I loved the movie, and so he started talking to me about the state of things with the comics, or at least as they were at the time. Things like The Dark Knight Returns, Year One, The Killing Joke, A Death in the Family, Lonely Place of Dying, all of those things. Um, he pretty much filled me in on a few years' worth of Batman stories. And just as a side note, if you think about it, it really is very easy to summarize those years. I mean, if you're talking to a, to a complete outsider... You could probably bring him up to speed on everything that happened in Batman comics, everything relevant, from 1986 till about 1990 in a, probably a five or so minute conversation. It's just, that's a very easy era to summarize. But anyway, so he pretty much filled me in and he said I should definitely start collecting the comics because some new guy was uh, getting ready to become the third Robin and apart from from being a really cool story, it was probably also going to be worth about a hundred zillion dollars some days. As it turned out, history would prove him to be right about only one of those things. Anyway, so, I had my mission. Start collecting comics. Later that night, my mom and I went to, went to Walden Books. Now, for you kids out there, there was a time when there, when that was a, a book selling, there was a book selling chain which could be found in uh, shopping malls. And there was also a time when comics were sold in places like that, so that made it easy for kids who had 
no way of getting to a comic book shop regularly to still follow at least some titles. So I checked out the spinner rack and locked in on, on two comics. The first was Detective Comics number 618, which seemed to have a lot of this Tim Drake guy in it. And isn't he training to become the new Robin or something? So, whatever. That seemed cool. The side effect of buying that issue is that the Norm Brayfogle version of Batman is pretty much definitive for me as far as that character is concerned. You know, there have been hundreds of artists that drew Batman before Norm Brayfogle. Hundreds have drawn Batman since Norm Brayfogle. But that one, that, that first one... That's just the one that I fell in love with. To me, Norman uh, Norm Brayfogle's Batman is is definitive. Plus, Detective Comics number six eighteen was the first part of a storyline that would partially orphan Tim Drake and leave his father paralyzed. So, it was a cool story, and it's also the first uh, comic book story that I collected each issue of. Now, I should pause here and add a little bit of a nuance. I had followed the entire Supergirl saga from the Superman titles, but I wasn't really a collector at that time. I don't think the fact that I owned all three chapters counts for anything. So, anyhow. The other thing I bought was Superboy the comic book number six, which was based on the Superboy TV show. Because, hey, I liked the TV show, and I had a few other Superboy issues. And those two comics formed the seeds of my collection. Now... I collected comics for the next several years. Obvious things, you know, the Superman titles, Batman titles, Flash, especially when Mark Wade took over, Impulse, um, Green Lantern, especially when Ron Mars took over. And I eventually uh, poked a toe into Valiant, Image, and Marvel, but just didn't get into their characters as much. In fact, I've often described myself as a rejected Spider-Man fan. Every time I ever tried to follow Spider-Man... The comics were either impossible to find, the story outright sucked, it was the Clone Saga, or all three of those. I tried to get into Spider-Man, but it was as if Marvel just didn't want me. So, because of all that, DC has always felt like home to me. So, even now, I may occasionally have these little weekend warrior blowouts in the Marvel Universe, but I'm fundamentally a DC guy. Still, I began encountering increasing resistance from my parents. At first, they, indu- they, they indulged all of this, I guess because they thought that this was a phase, and eventually I'd, I'd grow out of it. When it became clear to them that I wouldn't grow out of it anytime soon, they began actively discouraging comic book collecting as often as they could. Now, I should pause here and say that I love my parents and they love me. I don't want to come off as a whiner because my parents and I didn't see eye to eye to about comics. I also don't want to vilify them. I don't want them to come off like like jerks or anything. They simply didn't support this hobby. Now, I can't whitewash what they said and did, but I also don't want to smear them. They were and are good people. So, anyhow, things eventually reached a point where they forced me to stop collecting. Um, it came at a pretty inopportune time, uh, too, because I'd been getting ready to heavily expand my collecting. I hadn't really taken advantage of what Zero Hour had promised, and, and there are a lot of reasons for that. But I definitely wanted to start picking up uh, the post-Zero Hour version of the Legion of Superheroes that comes to mind. There was also Starman, The Ray, Damage, and a bunch of others. And actually, now that I think about it, plus there was uh, some Vertigo stuff looked kind of interesting, too. Anyhow, I think, I don't know this, but I think my parents may have had some idea of what I was planning, and they decided this all needed to stop right now. So as a result, I never got a chance to, to read those other titles until much later on. Now, I never completely dropped out of the industry. I'd pick up trades here and there, single issues here and there. Uh, I kept, uh, at the very least, a finger to the pulse of what was happening. I visited comic book stores on a semi-regular basis. In fact, there's a um, there's a uh, a show that I'm gonna that, that 
that's coming up in actually the very near future where I talk about just how much how much I was actually able to you know to read over these next uh, couple of years it's actually more than you think it's just the collecting that had to stop but it just seemed like those days were behind me and that wasn't completely by choice so that lasted pretty much until uh, 2010 some some kind of personal things happened that that ended up just changing my mind now, I don't want to get too much into that because it really is kind of private but what I'll say though is that it was a game-changing proposition and it led to a, a pretty a pretty dark time <laughs> in uh, a lot of ways from November of 2010 until about April of 2011 um, one thing that happened though was that I quickly decided that I had done what other people had told me to do way too many times and by November of 2010 the end of November I had exactly jack shit to show for it so I decided I would start uh, collecting again and anybody who doesn't like it well they had my permission to kindly fuck off Um, as I said though my collection was stunted because I never really got a chance to expand the type the, the types of books I followed the way I had originally wanted to but now I had a golden opportunity to fix all of that. That's where this podcast comes in. I've decided to use it at least partly to share my thoughts about uh, comics and stuff I've already read, but also about stuff that's completely new to me. Uh, as will become evident in uh, future episodes, Marvel figures into that very heavily. But mostly this is just going to be a valentine for this hobby. That's what this podcast is really supposed to be at the end of the day, so... How well I end up actually doing that, though, is up to you. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. You can find the home for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality at Magnus. .libson.com You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up You can friend me on Facebook by searching for Trentus Magnus which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S M-A-G-N-U-S You can email me and my parole officer at trentusmagnus at gmail.com Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind. And that's a promise. If you enjoyed the show, review it in iTunes. If you didn't enjoy the show, review it in iTunes. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promo can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promo section. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is copyright Magnus Media Enterprises Limited, Wisconsin Falls, California. California.